You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, dentist Barry Raphael, the dentist and orthodontist. Uh, we spoke a couple months ago about uh, dentistry and how it can help people with sleep issues, but we didn't go um, we didn't go nearly enough into uh, the mechanics of the skull and breathing and the throat and everything and how that affects sleep. So I wanted to have him back because Barry's uh, very well spoken about this. So Barry, thanks for coming. Well, you're welcome, Richard. It's uh, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed the uh, the last conversation we had, and oh, uh, I know that it is it is a a very pertinent um, topic because so many people have issues with sleep, and we know more about that than we ever have. Not only how important it is, but how we get how it gets disrupted, and I think that's what we'll talk about today. Well, um, I wanted to ask you structurally. What goes on with um, the skull, the throat, the nasal passages, and everything as you sleep, and how does that you know cause people problems in sleeping? Right. So I, I, the way I look at it is that when we're breathing, we are supposed to be able to intake air from the outside through our airway passages, preferably the nose, in through the nose, down through the back of the throat down to the bottom of the throat and to the trachea, the air should flow very smoothly. And if it does, we don't really have to make much of an effort to bring the air in. Our diaphragm, the muscle on the underside of the lungs, contracts. It pulls the bottom of the uh, chest cavity down. It kind of creates suction, sort of like what happens when you expand a bellows. And the air gets pulled in through the, the nose into the lungs. You don't even have to breathe deeply. I, that that concept is actually a little bit of a, a misnomer. If you're using your diaphragm, air will be distributed evenly throughout the lungs, even if you're not, you know, you don't you don't need to take a deep breath. The air just has to cover the whole surface of the lungs. So that's easy breathing. I, it it it, um, it doesn't cause the body any distress. It happens, you know, freely and you and preferably without having to think much about it. 
but there are some things that happen that cause air to swirl as it passes through that upper airway. And swirling of air, which is called turbulence, also creates negative pressure. So you think about turbulence as that um, the negative pressure that's created on the top of airplane wings. And, the, you know, when you think about it, the airplane wings are kind of tiny compared to the rest of the airplane, but the, the turbulence that's created there can lift that, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds up into the air reliably. Turbulence creates a lot of negative pressure. When turbulence happens in the airway, it also creates negative pressure. And that negative pressure pulls on the side walls of the airway to cause them uh, to either collapse or to flutter. So when the side walls of the airway flutter, it makes noise. And of course, we call that snoring. Snoring is one of the hallmarks of negative pressure or turbulence in the uh, in the airway. When, Good question uh, here. So, um, so normal normal breathing is is laminar. The air that's flowing through you is laminar. Pretty much, yeah. Now there there is some thought that air swirls a little bit around in through the nose. That um, it, it, there's kind of a spinning effect through the turbinates. The turbinates are little skin-covered bones that uh, line the inside of the nose, and that turbulence is what literally centrifuges out the dust, the particles, the pollen, the mites, the the dander, all the crud that's in the air that um, that gets filtered out, say, by your air conditioning filter, that gets filtered out by your nose. And so there's a little bit of swirling there, but still the way the nose is built, that air should still pass through without, uh, you know, the side walls of the nose collapsing. So no negative pressure built up uh, there particularly. So as the, so, so um, whenever you have turbulence in the air, it, it makes it harder for the, the body to draw the air through. And that can be quite discomforting. One way to experience that is to, say, keep your lips together, breathe through your nose, and then take one thumb and plug up one nostril. And as you do that, the, the, um, the source of the, of the air um, uh, is cut in half, and the ability for air to flow through is actually cut by the power of four. And you can feel that sort of difficulty breathing. Another way to test it is to try to breathe through a drinking straw, or worse yet, a cocktail straw. And most you people, know what would probably happen. You know what would probably happen is if you're breathing through uh, a restricted airway, is you have to make more of a mechanical, muscular effort to pull the air in. You have to create a, a greater pressure differential, and that might, yeah. in order to do that, your airway has to narrow in order to do that. Well, well, yeah, yes. Actually, the the harder you pull, the faster the air flows, and the faster the air flows, the more negative pressure is created. Mm-hmm. You you get you get a, a you know a, this uh, this uh, this effect where the harder you try to breathe, the worse it gets. Uh, so many people think this is what asthma is, uh, at least part of it. So, but uh, nonetheless, think about how uncomfortable that is. 
And when you when you experience this discomfort, you will do anything you can to rid yourself of that discomfort, right? So when I do this exercise with people, I make them breathe through a drinking straw. Before I even finish the exercise, they take the drinking straw out of their mouth. Or if you're underwater, say, and you've got a snorkel that either gets clogged or is too small or something like that, you're not going to stay there under the water and, and muse about how difficult it is to breathe. Your body's going to go into a panic. And panic, of course, is the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, an adrenaline push to, uh, to, to do whatever it takes because at the end of the day, Breathing is the most important thing we do moment to moment. And so we know instinctively, instinctively that anything that makes it harder to breathe is going to be a threat to our survival. Of course, there's all gradations of this, right? So yeah. um, if someone put their hand over your face and closed off your mouth and nose, they were trying to strangle you, that threat is really serious and you're going to start kicking you're going to lash out, you're going to try to run, you're going to make severe maneuvers to get out of that situation so that you can survive. You only have four minutes to do it, maybe three at most, right? right. This is how critical it is. So, But now imagine that you're sleeping. And for some reason, and we'll talk about those reasons, you also get, you're, you're also get the idea, I say you, your brain gets the idea that uh, airflow is being restricted. You're gonna literally have the same kind of reaction. May not be quite as uh, intense. It may not be quite as visible, but your body is still going to react in a way that's going to ensure your survival. So- Yeah, so for instance, Carol, if you're in, uh, in deep sleep, you'll be aroused out of that, probably to wakefulness, but maybe not, but at least you'll be pulled out of that deep level or whatever level of sleep you're in, you'll be definitely aroused out of it if this happens. That's, that's exactly right, Richard. And a lot of people don't get fully aroused into wakefulness unless it's really bad. Um, but they do get bumped out of those deeper levels of sleep. Level three sleep is where our brain shuts down and uh, the housekeeping for the day is done. The fluids get to rinse out the the uh, byproducts of the day's thoughts and you know metabolism i'm talking in a physical way not a mental way there there are little literally byproducts of metabolism in the brain that accumulate over a day's worth of thinking that have to be washed out um it's kind of like uh you know school shuts down at night and the janitor comes out and he he cleans he cleans up and then uh, the lights come back on again in the morning and everybody uh, gets active again. Well, there's a janitorial system in the brain called the glymphatic system and does a great job of uh, cleaning out. In fact, we know that when uh, the brain is not cleaned out properly, stuff starts to accumulate. And over the years, those accumulations uh, severely affect brain function. So this is what's thought to be at the, the base of um, under, underpinning uh, Alzheimer's uh, and dementia and that kind of thing. So being in deep levels of sleep is very important. Uh, the problems also happen in REM sleep. That's when we're dreaming, but we're especially uh, sub subject to problems because uh, most of our muscles go completely limp. 
Um, not our diaphragms, so we can keep breathing. Not our eyeballs for some unknown reason, but uh, which is where REM gets its uh, gets its name. But everything else goes limp. And if muscles or skin or tone of of uh, uh, of the walls of the side of the throat get limp enough, they can close off and create your drinking straw right there while you're trying to sleep. So people are extremely susceptible to that. And people that that have those uh, have to go through those arousals. Many of them report they don't really even remember dreaming much anymore. In fact, when the situation is rectified for them, they all of a sudden report having vivid dreams for the first time in a long time. Mm, okay. So th- those are things that 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 happen because of turbulence, and mm. um, you know they're at the heart. Now, there's there are three. Uh, things that create turbulence in the airway that we'll talk about. We can talk about each one, but to summarize, they are the anatomy of the airway. Um, It is the physiology of the airway and it's the behavior of breathing. So we'll talk about each one a little bit. The anatomy of the airway is from the tip of the nose down to the back of the throat or, you know, for those who breathe through their mouth and through the mouth and so forth, to the back of the throat, down behind the soft palate, um, which is attached to the upper jaw, down behind the tongue, which is essentially attached to the lower jaw, and then down um, past the, the epiglottis and then to the larynx. So if there's anything in the anatomy that creates a narrowing, that narrowing will create turbulence. So yeah, think about the narrow, like a nozzle. I guess after the narrow, right. the, uh, the exit part is where the turbulence happens. That's exactly right. The air speeds up and um, and then uh, the turbulence uh, happens after that. And that, that will uh, pull on the sidewalls. Um, there are measurements called the critical measurements of pressure in the, in the throat, uh, abbreviated as P-CRIT that measure just how much pressure is required to pull the, um, pull the sidewalls of, um, of the throat together. And of course, you don't want to exceed P-crit because then uh, not only is there turbulence, but then there is a cessation of flow. Mm. And you can imagine, we don't want, we don't want that to happen. So um, th- those, those narrowing spots, they can happen in the nose, it can happen right there in the front of the nose where the nostrils are. They're often narrow nostrils or there are collapses of the uh, cartilages, the lateral cartilages of the nose. There can be um, narrowing within the nose, like the turbinates we talked about can be very large um, and make the airway narrow. The, the middle wall of the nose called the septum, that can be bent uh, to the side, and that makes one side of the nose much uh, narrower. It can be swollen, um, swollen uh, adenoids or tonsils. Uh, it could be uh, a tongue that sits in the back of the throat, you know, pretty closely to the back of the throat. And frankly, that will happen if, and this is what we talked about last time, if the if the jaw bones, the upper jaw bone, the lower jaw bone, if they don't grow forward enough in the face, a phenomenon that's becoming more and more common in human beings in the modern post-industrial age, 
if that if that doesn't grow forward in the face, then the space behind the jaws is necessarily smaller. So that there can be those narrowing spots there um, down by the base of the tongue. It can be narrow. And there's some other anatomical uh, problems that people, you know, can can be born with that will cause uh, collapse and so forth. So that's anatomy. And then again, when when a narrowing spot occurs, um, mm -hmm. the narrowing will um, uh, decrease the flow of uh, of air by 16-fold to the fourth power. So you don't need much of a narrowing to create a significant uh, amount of turbulence. Yeah. So that's that's anatomy. The second thing is physiology. So physiology, by that I mean anything that creates, say, swelling, edema, or inflammation, uh, or uh, mucus, or um, say, uh, you know, um, uh, immune reactivity, uh, inflammation, uh, you know, in the airway, all those things by making the sidewalls of the airway either thicker, fat deposits is another, anything that makes the, uh, the sidewalls thicker makes the airway smaller. Mm. And so um, any of these things, that, now these things are really becoming a problem because for instance, allergies in children as well as adults are getting more and more severe. Uh, general inflammation, you probably have had, I'm sure you've had other people on your program talking about gut health and general body inflammation and leaky gut uh, syndrome and all that kind of stuff where they're I can autoimmune. Tell you, uh, yeah, I can tell you just very briefly in my own experience, um, you know, for a lot of my life, my nose was always stuffed up. You know, like six months out of the year, it was horrible. And it was only when I changed my diet and, you know, essentially ate ketogenically that uh, my allergies resolved like 95%. But yeah, I would, my nose would be stuffed up all the time and it would never have both nostrils open. At best, it would be like one nostril that would alternate, you know. Right. But not at all. So, and, and we're becoming more and more aware of how that, that affects us nutritionally and, and, and um, you know, and all that. Uh, but but a lot of people don't really realize, especially in growing children, that having to default to mouth breathing because your mm. nose is so stuffed up is going to change the growth trajectory of the bones. And so it becomes this, this cycle of bad breathing, bad bone growth, without good jaw growth, the airway is you know gets narrower effectively. And you wind up with lifelong problems uh, because uh, you can't breathe well. And especially at night, it's all the worst. But then there's the third, um, the third piece. And I think this one is probably the least appreciated by the people that talk about sleep. And that is the way we breathe. Because turbulence is also affected by the speed of the air and by the volume of the air. So, I mean, this, this is why a plane can't take off until it's going, you know, a certain speed. It can't build up that, that negative pressure unless it's get, the air is flowing very fast. So if you happen to be breathing fast or hard, which, frankly, you will do if you're in a panic, you're going to make the problem worse because you're going to be increasing the, the negative pressure and coming closer to that critical pressure. So... Um, using 
excuse me, using the diaphragm and breathing gently through the nose is the, the better way of breathing. But many of us breathe either faster or harder or deeper or take in a larger volume of air per minute in a way that that alone stresses the airway. And um, it not only creates the turbulence, but it changes the balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And, um, and maybe we should discuss that a little bit too, because the, the way we breathe not only affects the airway itself, but also affects how oxygen is delivered to all parts of our body based on the fact that carbon dioxide, which we often think of as just a waste gas, is actually a critical component in the buffering of blood. And the, the pH of the blood determines exactly how oxygen is transferred from the lung to hemoglobin. And then a change in pH allows hemoglobin to jump off, I mean, oxygen to jump off of hemoglobin and then perfuse into the tissues. And so what happens uh, if you, uh, this is also a concept that I don't hear very many people talking about. Even sleep physicians don't really talk about this, even though it's been in the physiology book for decades and decades. In fact, this, this concept was granted a, a Nobel Prize, I, I can't remember when, 1920s or something like that, by, to Christian Bohr. Uh, and he, he, it's described by his name, the Bohr effect talks about the dissociation curve of oxygen off of hemoglobin. Um, I, I, I laugh because I never thought I would have to remember the Hass, Henderson-Hasselbach equation when I learned it in undergrad. Uh, it was just, you know, one of those things you wanted to take the test on and forget. But it becomes very, very relevant, relevant, relevant now because if you cannot deliver oxygen properly to the tissue, then those tissues will suffer from uh, efficient metabolism, uh, you know, and and this happens in every part of the body. So there, it is thought that um, there was one study looking at emergency room visits in New York City, uh, I don't know, some years ago, and um, they calculated that 60% of uh, visits to ER to the ER in New York City with the time of the study were due to directly or most likely indirectly the ability of the body to deliver oxygen to various body parts. If you can't deliver oxygen to your organs, they are not going to function efficiently. If you can't deliver oxygen to your muscles, then, then they are going to either fatigue more easily, go into anaerobic metabolism more easily, not recover quite as fast, and finally, if you can't deliver oxygen to your brain, it will also not work as well. So you're going to have fuzziness, you know, fogginess or, uh, you know, poor memory or can't concentrate and this and that. And so the way we breathe becomes a critical factor, not only on how air passes through, but how oxygen is getting delivered to all parts of the body. And I, there are only a very few people that are talking about this in sleep medicine these days. And I really think it's an issue that people have to start paying more attention to. So anatomy, physiology, and behavior. This, those are the three things that cause turbulence. And so when we're talking well, about of, sleep. Uh, 
in terms of breathing though what how does someone misbehave breathing wise do they just a stressed person and they tend to breathe you know fast and shallow or you know do people uh, i don't know do they do, do they over breathe i mean what's yeah it's very know, to, so one very common way of over breathing is breathing through the mouth so uh breathing through the mouth essentially is a compensation for not being able to breathe through the nose we are born um, uh, obligate nasal breathers. I mean, think about it as babies. The first thing we're going to do is suckle on mom's breast, right? Well, you can't do that if you can't breathe through your nose. And in fact, even in babies, for the uh, first several months of their lives, they can only breathe through their nose. There's a, there's a literal lock between the nasal passage and the mouth. Um, by an overlap of the soft palate and the epiglottis, that that's actually um, something that's found in all other animals except for humans. And uh, but it is found in infants. Now um, that that lock uh, separates the soft palate and the and the uh, epiglottis separate at one point. It actually is thought to be a phenomenon that occurred when we as animals stood up on two feet and became upright and our necks our heads started balancing on the top of our uh you know neck and, and shoulders rather than being uh coming straight off and so forth and our necks started getting a little bit longer and that um that that separation occurred uh the process is called clinorinky uh, the anthropologic uh, description of it and um, that that separation between the soft palate and the um, and the epiglottis allowed us as humans to do two things. Can you guess what they are? Breathe and eat and swallow independently. Well, one of them, it, it, you'll be surprised to uh, to learn, is speak. The reason we can articulate is because we can force air up through the mouth. And shape it with our tongue and, and you know lips and and so, and so forth. But the other thing it allowed us to do, which was sort of the curse of this all, is have sleep apnea, because it's only because the tongue can fall to the back of the throat that um, that that we can that our tongue can get to the back of the throat to close off the airway. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, interesting so, trade-off. It's an interesting trade-off. Is exactly right. Um, you know, if we if we left the Garden of Eden to be able to uh, articulate our knowledge, um, we also have the curse of um, having us uh, have trouble sleeping and and uh, and all the ramifications uh, from that. Yeah. So what to uh, what to do? What are some of the common manifestations clinically you'll see uh, of how people are intentionally or unintentionally hurting them their sleep and what can you do about it okay ramifications of poor sleep well look at this in two different ways um while um sleep medicine and sleep dentistry which are fields that really are relatively new i we didn't really start paying much attention this to this until the 1980s 90s dentistry started jumping in a little bit after that the, um, the the thing that that most people in sleep medicine, sleep dentistry are worried about is sleep apnea. Now, sleep apnea occurs when peak crit is reached 
and the uh, airway collapses and, um, and oxygen levels start to drop in our blood. So it, the, air, the airflow either stops or it becomes um, uh, slowed down enough that we're using oxygen out of our blood, but we're not replenishing it. And so you get a drop in blood oxygen. And uh, these are called apneas and hypopnea. And really, this is what most people are focusing on when they go to a sleep position. They put them in an in a overnight sleep study. That's what they're going to measure. How many apneas and hypopneas do you have in an hour? That's what they call their index, the average of an hour. And What if you're not having apneas? What if you're just having... Uh... It does have upper airway restriction, which, you know, doesn't wake you up, but causes you to have arousals a thousand times a night. That was exactly going to be my point, Richard. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed that you picked up on that because right now apnea, um, apnea is, um, you know, probably prevalent. They, they, they're estimating in eight to 15% of the population. And even out of that, um, probably only 10% actually figure it out. But hmm. apnea and hypopnea happen largely after years and years of having trouble breathing at night and successfully averting the problem by adopting some kind of compensation while you're sleeping. So in other words, <clears throat> you think about that feeling again you have when you close one nostril or drink through a, uh, breathe through a drinking straw, that, that discomfort happens and we do things to get rid of it. So what do we do? We roll over, we open our mouth, we breathe faster, we breathe harder, we, our heartbeat raises sometimes 20, 25 beats per minute. Um, these are all things that, that we can do to get our, our air going again and, and chill out. And then we go back to sleep. But after doing that for years and years and the struggle and effort to breathe when it's hard to breathe, the body starts to wear out. The neurologic connections start to wear out. The muscular patterns, the, uh, the muscular um, uh, tone in the throat starts uh, to uh, decrease. And besides, we're, you know, our skin is getting less elastic and we're building up more fat as we get older and all of those things. And then finally, the body just kind of gives up. It says, look, I, I've been through this a million times before. It's okay if I stop breathing for five or 10 seconds or even 15 seconds or 20 seconds. And Good. then eventually it gets so threatening that you wake up with a snort and a start and, uh, and, you know, and then you take a deep breath and catch up on your breath a little bit and then you fall back. That's a, that's classic apnea. And it's not easy to watch. It's really scary to watch. And, you know, it's horrible. Bedpans will look over and they'll go, oh, my God, I thought you were dying. You know, it's like it's it, it, but that's the end stage disease. And this is really important. You picked up on this is that before you get to the point where you actually have apnea and hypopnea. You're probably struggling to breathe, but just successfully dealing with it. And so what, what I focus on largely in my practice is not the people that have gotten to the end of the, end of the line and have uh, high apneas and hypotenias. I'm trying to intercept this problem for people 
way before that, while their nervous system is still pretty vigilant and vibrant and able to deal with these things and then deal with the structure, function, and behavior that might help them back out of it. So, uh, yeah, and the, the, when you have sleep apnea, the, the most common things, well, there are a lot of things, but the most common thing you think of is sleepiness. So there's a, an Epworth sleepiness scale, some eight or 10 questions that you have to answer to give you an idea. And there are things like, uh, do you fall asleep while you're sitting at a red light? You fall asleep when you're reading a book? You have trouble keeping awake in a theater, you know, stuff like that. And uh, people that have apnea will be can fall asleep at the drop of a hat. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if you are struggling to breathe at night, but doing that successfully, you are going to be fatigued during the day. Fatigue is different. It's a different feeling than sleepiness. And fatigue, there's there's sort of a muscular weariness, a uh, um, a, 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 almost a depressive feeling that um, you just almost, you know, you have trouble making the next move. And so there's another scale that we use called the fatigue severity scale, which just looks at this problem in a little bit different way. People that have upper airway resistance, as you prop properly called it, uh, you know, feel more fatigue. And there are really a whole host of symptoms in, in, um, in sleep apnea, there's a lot of uh, um, um, stress on the heart and the circulatory system. People with apnea are very uh, commonly subject to cardiovascular disease and stroke, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stress on organs. There's a lot of stress on growth. You know, I, I should say this. You know, it's not just older people that get apnea. Uh, kids that have large tonsils and adenoids that are corking up the airway will also have apnea. Um, you know, they have to be really big. To, um, but um, in airway resistance, it's a very different symptomatology. It's more like depression. It's general pain. It's um, um, things like fibromyalgia and, and uh, uh, you know, other assorted um non-specific pain syndromes or discomfort syndromes and you know we we've medicine has struggled to to try to characterize these things uh dentistry has been working with with pain in the head like tmj pain headaches neck aches you know that that kind of, sometimes even toothaches uh, re, with, that come from referred pain you know we, we've tried to uh we've tried to d deal with these things through uh you know, anatomical uh, treatments like concentrating on the shape, size, function of the temporomandibular joint. But there are other times in history where we just said people that have these these kinds of pains are crazy. It's just, it's just you know, you don't, there, there's no seeming reason for it. And now we're really putting together the idea that there's a lot of things we've been struggling with as practitioners that are related to poor night sleep, facial pain, the, the muscle dysfunction, um, the um, grinding and clenching of the teeth. I mean, people will literally destroy their teeth and the fillings that the, the dentist puts in to repair them uh, because they are clenching and grinding so badly at night that they, uh, and, and why? Because clenching and grinding is a compensation. Comp 
a compensation, a compensatory behavior for uh, not being able to breathe well. If you clench your teeth really hard, it kind of opens the muscles on the back of the throat. Um, there's, there's a pairing of muscles that are antagonistic there where clenching uh, will open the throat or it's part of the arousal. You're actually trying to wake yourself up. We know this by watching people in the sleep labs. These arousals happen when you're having trouble. They'll grind their teeth to try to wake themselves up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I would say it exactly that way. But they, they're hat. They, they are grinding themselves. They are grinding their teeth as they are waking up. I'm not sure which one causes which. It's an association that we don't really fully understand yet. But um, yeah. it's clear that we should not be clenching our teeth at night. And we've even demonstrated that the pressure you can put on your teeth at night when you're going through these arousals is five times greater than you could ever put on your teeth awake if you try to clench and grind your teeth. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we would never hurt ourselves during the day as badly as we hurt ourselves at night when we're having trouble breathing. Hmm. Interesting. So what? Uh, I mean, what are some of the... I, you know, the common remedies that I've talked about a lot, you know, CPAPs, oral, oral appliances to advance your lower jaw. Yeah. What about uncommon ones or ones with difficult cases or ones you think would be more efficacious that, you know, aren't just the, you know, the gold right. standard, as they say? Yeah, the gold. So what's true is that if someone has real sleep apnea, you shouldn't mess around with any other kind of thing, but, but, but stabilizing the airway as quickly as you can. Medicine doesn't have a lot to offer in a way. They have CPAP, which in my mind could be used as a good crutch, and you want to, but you don't, medicine will let you stay on it forever. Sleep medicine, they, they, they don't always have good, uh, now they have tried other things. I mean, I have to be fair about it. For a long time, they were cutting uh, uh, tissue out of the, the, the nose and throat as a way of opening the airway. And um, <clears throat> uvulopalatoplasty, uh, you know, take sort of like a, 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 you know, fat removal, take out the fat pads, reduce the tonsils, the adenoids, cut away some of the, the uvula, cut away some of the, the, the sidewalls, take out the turbinates or reduce the size of the turbines. These are all ways of creating more flow. But the long-term studies are showing that many of the, breathing problems will return after a while they and and it doesn't surprise me because they're only taking care of one small part of the problem and that is that is uh the anatomy um in my mind if you're going to do this properly you really have to address all three aspects of the airway behavior physiology and the anatomy so <clears throat> yes you do want to make the airway bigger it makes you know the, even a small amount of air of size improvement can make a tremendous difference in airflow, right? The mean power. So, um, yes, bringing the jaw forward. In adults, we do that artificially with an appliance that'll jut the jaw forward that brings the back of the tongue out of the throat. In kids, appropriately, we try to get the bones to grow forward. That's what we were talking about last time. If I can get the jaw bones to grow to their normal, proper size, and not only will the airway be bigger, but there'll be more room for the tongue in the front of the mouth so it doesn't hang, have to hang out in the back of the mouth. Mm. Uh, and teaching good breathing behavior is, is something that we can do. And it's, it, it, it's well, I'm going to say it's harder than you would think, 
because just breathing deeply or doing meditation or yoga that which you know that's kind of the right thinking but you can be very relaxed while you're doing a yoga class and do pranayama and all that but then you get in your car and you're on your way home on the freeway and the traffic starts again and your kids call want to know where dinner is and so forth your breathing is back to where it was so there there is a um, there is a group now physiologists and behavioral psychologists that are teaching breathing behavior using a um a, a biofeedback tool that measures end tidal carbon dioxide that is carbon dioxide at the end of the breath it's really equivalent to what's in your lungs and in your blood and is a good measure of how um, efficiently you're de- you're uh, delivering oxygen. So um, you can use that to pinpoint times when your breathing behavior becomes dysfunctional because it's associated perhaps with some kind of stressor in your life. That could be a physical stressor, a mental stressor, um, you know, uh, you know, lo- lots of things will trigger an autonomic response in our body, right? You're probably aware of how stressful the modern environment is to us uh, in that we're in sympathetic mode a lot. And we don't- What can you do about the, what what can you do about all this? You know, if you're, how do you fix your breathing? How do you accomplish any of this? Yeah, so the biofeedback training with the, uh, with with the, the capnometry it can be a very successful tool if it helps you become more aware of those times when you're over breathing. And the assumption is if you can if you can tame your breathing during the day, that you will likely breathe better at night. And certainly the obverse is that if you're not breathing well during the day, you can't really expect to be breathing well at night. So sleep is... About, uh, well, I want to ask you more about the capnometry, but what about myofunctional therapy if you do exercises to to try to strengthen your tongue and your throat and things like that yes exactly so that that's also another approach that works um on the physiology in that when we have muscle patterns that are themselves dysfunctional which leads to poor jaw growth that um the tongue can often be an interference uh, the 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 constrictor muscle of the back of the throat can be an interference, and um, the position of the jaw can be an interference, and the way the hyoid bone sits can be an interference. You know, it becomes this <laughs> this tangled mess of form and function that that uh, you know leads leads to a, a trajectory of ill health or or or. Uh, you know, poor breathing and poor sleep and so forth. So myofunctional therapy can be really helpful in toning the muscles, getting the tongue where it belongs, up on the palate, um, out of the back of the throat. Um, then then uh, changing the structure, which is really where I come in, um, can be important. Um, at, for children, like I say, I try to help the bones grow properly from the get-go. But there are things you can do for adults to help widen the palate, bring it forward. Um, you know, sometimes we can use uh, natural processes of bone growth and remodeling 
to help those, uh, the bones change. You heard about this when you hosted Ted Belfour some weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, um, a little more drastically, but also more certainly, you can uh, surgically reshape the jaw bones, um, uh, effectively uh, dislocating them from the skull, moving them forward away from the back of the throat, and then reattaching them in a way that provides a a big, beautiful airway. And uh, frankly, this is probably the most efficacious way of handling these problems that are, you know, that are certainly serious. Not everybody's going to choose to do major, major facial surgery for that. But if it means adding 10 or 15 or 20 years to your life to help your circulatory and, and, um, you know, and, and, and mental function, uh, you know, over those years where it's otherwise going to get beaten up, it's kind of worth it. And and I've uh, I've heard testimony from people who come out of the OR and go, oh my God, this is what it feels like to breathe, huh. because for the first time that passage is open. Yeah. You know. Um. And this is Richard. I I I really I I see this as one of a of the crucial factors in human society is that many of the chronic diseases we're suffering are likely linked to this inability to breathe well. And it's really not received the kind of attention that it needs because so many of us in medicine and dentistry pay so much attention to the symptoms themselves in our silos of specialty that we miss this big picture. And there is nothing more important than oxygen. It, it almost sounds silly to say it because everybody knows you can't go for three minutes without oxygen. And yet, who right, pays attention to it? You figure if you woke then, up in the morning, you're breathing okay. But you don't, think, you don't think a lot of these things. I mean, a lot of the best things I've ever learned are you, someone could always come along and say, oh, that's common sense. That's obvious. But, you know, it's okay. Those, there's a lot more beyond the obvious statement that you need air to breathe. That's what we've been yeah. talking about for the past hour. So it makes yeah, sense. Don't worry. You know, I, I say, well, you can run your car on 87 test gas, but it'll run a whole lot better if you're on 94 or 98 mm. or whatever. 93, yeah. And that's what's yeah. happening. We're, we're suffering from chronic intermittent hypoxia that doesn't register on a moment-to-moment basis, but over the life of the machine, it wears the parts down. Well, very good. We're... Um... And you get so much to say that's the problem. <laughs> We're out of time again, but I, I just want to give listeners again another another call to action. How do they, um, you know, if they're in your area, um, what area do you serve and how can they come see you? And then I want to ask what they can do if they're not in your area physically. Right. Well, you know, I mentioned this last time, and I, I will say it again, that no matter where you are, there's a group of uh, us of uh, like-minded dentists and physicians that are thinking more functionally, that are thinking more holistically about this about this issue. And you can find a number of them at uh, an organization called the American Academy of Physiologic Medicine and Dentistry. We just jot this part down, aapmd.org. And uh, they have a, a database of practitioners who think like I do. West of Manhattan, in Clifton, my website's alignmind.com. It's a holdover from when I just did the orthodontic piece, but um, 
that's how they can find me. And if I attract any practitioners, and this is, I, I mean, in a way, this is my mission because so many practitioners, especially orthodontists, need to start paying attention to this in a in a much bigger Ooh. way because so many people suffering from them. I am happy to teach them everything I know. I set up a classroom. I can, um, I, I have, I can give courses. We, we have courses for all levels. Um, I bring in speakers and all that so that you can go back to your practice and start addressing these problems. And that's at learnairwayortho.com. Okay. Very good. Well, Barry, thank you for coming again. You're welcome. And now I'm a fan. I can't wait to see your next episode. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.